presenting this month's special series, Focus on Children's Health on ReachMD, XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Focus on Children's Health is supported by Genzyme Corporation, researching the most challenging areas of medical need. Learn more about one of the world's leading biotechnology companies at Genzyme.com. Your host is Dr. Maurice Pickard, internist and medical ethicist. A recent policy statement by the American Academy of Pediatrics has brought female genital mutilation to our national attention. Long looked at as a problem in Africa and Asia, this practice now has implications in U.S. pediatric practice. Our guest is Dr. Douglas Dikema, Director of Education for the Truman Katz Center for Pediatric Bioethics and Professor in the Division of Bioethics Department of Pediatrics at the University of Washington School of Medicine. Thank you, Dr. Dikema, for joining us. Thank you for having me. To begin with, could you bring us up to date? What was this policy statement made by the American Academy? The policy statement, the actual recommendation, part of the policy statement said that the Academy opposes all forms of female genital cutting that pose risks of either physical or psychological harm to the girl. That was the actual policy as stated, and it goes on to encourage members to learn about female genital cutting, in part because they will see some of these young women in their practices who have had it done in other places, and that they actively seek to dissuade families who might request such a procedure from undergoing it. But wasn't there a suggestion that there might be a way to substitute a nicking type of procedure that might cause people who had this cultural desire to do this to accept? There was a suggestion. It was not a formal recommendation. In the body of the policy section where we were discussing the education of parents and patients, we did in fact have a section that was devoted to that, in part because it is part of the debate. There are certainly critics who would rather it not be part of the debate, but we didn't feel it would be intellectually honest to ignore it. And the majority of the committee was convinced that it had the potential to represent a harm reduction strategy. And, you know, that section was very carefully worded. We said there's reason to believe that offering that kind of a compromise to families who were insistent on having the procedure might be a way of building trust and preventing some of these girls from returning to their home countries and undergoing more disfiguring procedure to sort of give you verbatim what we said. It might be more effective if federal and state laws enabled pediatricians to reach out to families by offering a ritual neck as a possible compromise to avoid greater harm. And the entire intent there was to avoid greater harm to girls who were likely to, whose parents or mothers were likely to pursue a much more mutilating or disfiguring procedure. Was there any evidence that this suggestion of a nicking might placate parents, and in particular mothers, because it seems to be the mothers who are the driving force in this mutilative procedure. And I would agree with that. It's certainly been our experience that it's primarily the women in the family who are the driving force. There's, you know, obviously not evidence sort of in an empirical way, because this is very difficult to study, but there is evidence from conversations with families. Much of that comes from the experience that Harborview had in the mid-90s when they considered this as a possibility. And this actually arose through a series of discussions that were held with the Somali community in Seattle, where there were a number of families, a number of mothers, who said in no uncertain terms that they would return to Africa to have something done if they couldn't get something done in this country. 
that they were concerned that once they were back in Africa, they would lose control over the extent of the procedure. In other words, they weren't particularly interested in having their daughters undergo an extensive procedure, but they felt very strongly that something had to be done. And in discussing what that something might be, it became very clear that, at least for some of them, a very small nick of the clitoral hood would satisfy their need to feel their daughter's head and cut. It's my understanding that mothers never really ask for them to have a cutting or mutilation, but they state, I want my daughter to be like me. And it sounds like the nicking wouldn't answer that particular request. Well, it sounds that way. I think when you actually explore these with a lot of the mothers, I think what you find is that there may be some significant wiggle room in terms of what they mean by like me. In other words, they may not mean the daughter literally has to look like her, but that she has to be like her in the sense that she has undergone some cutting. Now, that being said, it's only fair to you know, admit the fact that there's a huge range, as there is with any religion or culture or any other ideologic belief. There are clearly going to be some families for whom only, you know, the most extensive procedure will satisfy them. But there will be others who will be satisfied, may not be happy with a less extensive procedure like a ritual neck, but would be satisfied enough that the demands of their belief system had been met that they wouldn't pursue something more extensive. Yeah, I just like to interject. There is no religious basis for this. It is strictly cultural. Believe it or not, that's debatable. The people who argue there's no religious basis do so on the basis that there's no mention in the, the Quran. Quran. That's correct. Yeah. But there are apparently other Islamic religious documents that explicitly mention cutting. No more extensively than that. I mean, the word is cutting. People who take those documents seriously do believe that there is a an obligation to cut both men and women. And so for some of these families, there is actually a perception, at least, that it's a religious belief. And, you know, we can argue about whether it actually is or not, and I'm not going to get into that argument because I'm not familiar enough with the religion. But what's probably the most important is that there are families that believe this is a religious demand. There are apparently some ancient documents that would support that. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to the Children's Health Month on ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Maurice Pickard, and our guest today is Dr. Douglas Dikema, Director of Education for the Truman Katz Center for Pediatric Bioethics and Professor in the Division of Bioethics, the Department of Pediatrics at the University of Washington School of Medicine, and we're discussing the latest developments in protecting girls from female genital mutilation. You mentioned that we may be seeing children in our own country who have gone through this procedure. Is that indeed a fact? I mean, are people coming into our emergency room? I know you staff are an attending man in a uh, large university emergency room. Are we seeing children coming back from outside the United States having had this procedure done? The answer is yes. I haven't personally, but then my practice in the emergency room doesn't have me often examining the genitals of girls in this age group, because the age group is usually somewhere between 5 and 15 that this procedure is done. And as a matter of fact, that's not a common age in which any physician without sort of some medical indication is necessarily doing a routine exam that would necessarily pick up some of the less significant procedures. But I had one of our residents the other day tell me that she had seen a young girl in her clinic who clearly had a very extensive procedure done and had an infection from it. In other words, it appeared to have been done fairly recently, recently enough that she was 
suffering a significant infection in her labial area. Yeah, that's what I was thinking of. Most pediatricians probably do not examine that area on a regular basis, but are we seeing, I should have said, complications? Because in many cases, there's extensive surgery of the clitoris and the actual of the vagina is sewed shut. I would imagine if they're then coming back, we're going to see complications. I don't think we see a lot of those. We do. You know, I know obstetricians who see them and urologists who see them, and I've talked to both obstetricians and urologists in Seattle who have dealt with these issues. The truth is, since the procedure is considered illegal in the United States, most of these procedures are being done elsewhere. Either that or they're being done surreptitiously in the communities, and we don't know whether that's happening. But unless there's sort of an egregious complication afterwards, they're unlikely to seek medical care. Most people in these communities know it's illegal in the United States. So if they have it done sort of on the street by one of their local people, they're very unlikely to seek care unless their child is really in trouble. And if it's done in Africa, the odds are that the stage at which you'd most likely see acute complications has passed by the time they come back. You mentioned uh, we have laws in this country against it, and I really wonder how successful those laws are. Early in my practice, getting an abortion was against the law, and I certainly saw them in my practice being done illicitly. And certainly the Volstead Act certainly didn't stop people from drinking. Bad cases make bad laws, and I'm just wondering about, is the law the way to deal with this problem? You know, I worry about that. It's naive to think that by passing draconian laws, you'll eliminate a practice. I think what you do is you drive particularly when it's a strongly held belief, and you've given two great examples of this, you drive it underground, and it just goes out of sight. And, you know, that allows the people who pass the law to feel really good about the law because they don't see any evidence that it's taking place. But that doesn't mean that there aren't people, you know, drinking in basements and having abortions in a back alley and having genital cutting done by a local Somali practitioner. There's an organization in Senegal called Tostad, started by a schoolteacher named Molly Melching, and I had an opportunity to talk to her on this show. She went there to really teach English as a second language and developed an organization to empower women to recognize that they had human rights. And from this organization, a groundswell in Africa that now includes maybe 4,000 villages, women have now taken a stand against this particular procedure. And I'm wondering if the American Academy of Pediatrics has an opportunity of educating and teaching women that they have certain rights that might be being violated. And this might be the answer as opposed to a legal draconian type of uh, approach. I think you're right about that. And I think there's abundant evidence to support that. I mean, I think what we've learned about these sorts of atrocities that have been performed on women is that the way you eliminate them is by empowering women economically and politically and in other ways. And so I think the tactic you have suggested is the one that's the most likely to be effective. And I think there's evidence that in places where that's been done, things like female genital cutting do decrease in prevalence. And so I'm fully supportive of that. I think there is a great opportunity here. And, you know, it may be worth pointing out that in some ways that gets left behind with a sort of obsessive focus on trying to make something illegal, that all the focus goes toward, you know, getting laws passed in every state and getting new, more serious laws passed, and, and that's effort that's not being spent to actually benefit these communities and women in, in ways that would probably be much more important and long-lasting. 
Well, I really appreciate talking to Dr. Douglas Dikema about a very difficult problem that is global in character. And in many ways, America thought it was protected from this, that this was a problem of somebody else's culture and not our culture. And America knows it is a country of many, many cultures. And I want to thank you very much for discussing how to protect girls from female genital mutilation. Oh, you're welcome. You've been listening to Focus on Children's Health on ReachMD, XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Focus on Children's Health is supported by Genzyme Corporation, researching the most challenging areas of medical need. Learn more about one of the world's leading biotechnology companies at Genzyme.com. Genzyme Corporation is proud to support this important programming for ReachMD listeners. Genzyme Corporation does not control the editorial content of this broadcast. The views expressed are solely those of the guests who are selected by ReachMD. To download this program or any program in the Focus on Children's Health series, please visit us at ReachMD.com. How can mucopolysaccharidosis 1 or MPS 1 present? Listen as Dr. Chet Whitley, Director, Advanced Therapies, Department of Pediatrics and Institute of Human Genetics, University of Minnesota, describes a case of MPS-1. Allison was referred to the University of Minnesota Genetics Clinic when there were concerns raised about her skeletal changes, her physical appearance that suggested mucopolysaccharidosis. Allison had subtle facial changes which have been historically called coarsening or puffiness of the facial features. There was some significant curvature of the back or kyphosis or gibbous deformity of the back. There was also very, very subtle corneal clouding, a level of corneal clouding that would probably escape a routine diagnosis but could be identifiable with a slit lamp microscope by a, a trained ophthalmologist. This led to further evaluations for carpal tunnel syndrome which is typically asymptomatic in a child but are detectable by an EMG. To determine if Allison had a mucopolysaccharidosis, we ordinarily want to take a urine test to measure glycosaminoglycans, or GAGs, in the urine. When the GAGs are found to be elevated, that essentially is confirmation of an MPS or mucopolysaccharidosis condition. Hers were elevated, and that indicated that we should be doing additional confirmatory testing, and testing that would determine which of the different MPS types she actually was affected by. When we found the urine GAGs were elevated, we went on with enzyme testing from a blood sample. We determined that she was deficient of the enzyme alpha-L-hydronidase. That defined her condition as mucopolysaccharidosis type 1. You've been listening to the case of Allison, who was diagnosed with MPS-1 by Dr. Chet Whitley, Advanced Therapies Department of Pediatrics and Institute of Human Genetics, University of Minnesota. To learn more about Allison's case and MPS-1 in general, please visit www.mps1diagnosis.com.